Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. So this is breaking news. I had okay. to cut Jeff off in what he was saying. Mm -hmm. He just told me that he's drinking three to four Celsius's a day. Right. That's true. And you're not drinking coffee anymore. Uh, so if I keep up the Celsius, then I can not drink coffee. Yeah. So on the can, it says do not exceed do not... two within a 24 yeah. hour period. You're doubling that. Yes, that's true. And you like the cola version too, which we were just I, talking I about. We were laughing about because I don't know. I never see cola anymore. I know. That's a problem. And that's your favorite I don't one. Like the, the, yeah, this is the problem is that I don't like any of the other flavors. They're, yeah, they're big on fruit flavors, uh -huh. which is not my thing. Yeah. Those are the best ones. I was. I, just, they must be because if you look at the shelf space, they devote to it. Yeah. I actually tried the gray version recently, but look at this. So if you're looking on YouTube right now, let's look at this is all focused compound fault. Celsius, just Kansas. Cell. Everyone, every time I open up my Twitter, I'm seeing pictures of people drinking Celsius's. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we didn't invest in the company. Have you done no. the math on that by when we looked at it? What it would have been. I don't know. It would have been 10 times or something. What's it been? Oh, I think it would. It's up like dramatic. I think it was like it okay. could have been like, you know, depends how much the investment would have been. But, you know, two, three to four million to. Well, know, what's the price of sales? 70 plus million. What's the price of sales now on it? Yeah. Know? Let's let's take a look at our friend Celsius right now. Celsius Holdings, ticker CELH. Yeah, so it would be over. Seven billion. We looked at be, what? It would be probably. um over 10 times just in terms of multiple expansion then there's also that sales have gone up too oh but even gosh. if sales hadn't gone up yeah wow we'd be like uh we'd, we probably wouldn't be recording this podcast right now we'd be gone <laughs> yeah it is a what seven billion dollar <laughs> company with a hundred some million of sales yeah even I know, if they grow the same rate they are this year next year they'd be like 200 million sales so i mean that's a big valuation to put on something with that yeah amount yeah that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely insane. Anyways, if this is the first time you're tuning in with us, uh, hit that subscribe button wherever you are watching or listening to the podcast. If you are watching the screen right now, this is QuickFS. This is the software that Jeff and I use every single day. Go to quickfs.net. And if you do sign up, tell them that you uh, heard of them from Focus Compounding. If you did not hear of QuickFS from Focus Compounding, still tell them that you heard of them uh, from uh, from Focus Compounding because we get a piece of that. Uh, so uh, that's a lot of fun and we use this every single day. So in today's podcast, Jeffrey, well, mm -hmm. I guess before we dive into it, the people want to know, did you see the new Bond movie? I did. Of course actually, you did. Yeah. I knew you did. I, I didn't did. know you did. Yeah. I didn't ask, but I knew that you did. How was it? How did it do at the box office? I think it was it did, disappointing, I heard. Well, it's complicated. I'd say it did exactly as projected. However, it had very big preview numbers. So the way that this works, um, everyone projects these things. Like I think we mentioned the numbers projects it and stuff, but the distributor projects it. There's all these things. And so as things come in, it's sort of like election night. They start to use the data that they're getting in. Sure. So if you look at what it did on uh, the night that it would have opened, which I don't know if that was a Thursday or whatever the preview audience was, um, it would have been like they would have started thinking it could be 90 million or more. Uh -huh. um, and I would guess, I don't know what it came in at, but I would guess a little less than 60. What would it come in at for the weekend? Let's see. Domestic box. Yeah. Office. Go to box office there. Um, uh, it shows you the weekends. If you go down probably. Yeah. What does it say for it? The weekend number for the U S um, it doesn't say yet. Is it the 55 million? Yep. So 55 yeah. million. Mm -hmm. So I would have guessed it would be like 60. So, um, but based on that, the number of the first night, it, you know, if that the normal multiples hold, that would have been like 90 to 120 million, which it was never going to do. Um, it's doing big outside the U S 
I would guess, we can try predicting here, uh, my guess for people listening is it'll do around 150 million in the US. Okay. And I'm going to go with um, almost as much as 500 million in outside the US. Did he die in the movie? Uh, I can't. Let's ruin it for everybody. Did he die? I can't reveal that information. (laughs) Did Uh, you like it? It's the longest uh, James Bond movie, I would say. Yeah. How long was it? I believe it's two hours, 45 minutes, which also affects box office because obviously that limits the number of showings you can have. I saw it in IMAX. Uh, So it's a big issue for IMAX and stuff like that because IMAX now can only show whatever, you know, some like the theater I went to only has one IMAX screen. Uh So you can give a lot of screens generally, but you only have one IMAX screen to give. And so every like they're showing it once every three and a half hours or something. They got to show it at the moment they open the place and they got to show it the last minute that they're open to to make enough money from it. Um, Very full when I saw it. But again, that's like apparently it was front loaded. So... Um, and so what is that, you know, that could mean things about COVID and stuff too, because it's an older audience. Mm-hmm, sure. And it skewed more male than is normal. Oh, James Bond always skews male, but not as severely as it happened here. I think it almost two to one male. Um, and so women over 35, I think they've mentioned in, in the numbers and places like that, we'll talk about it may be a reason for why you're not seeing as much later in the weekends and stuff, um, that you're seeing more diehard fans of any of these things, whether it's Bond or, um, Marvel or any of those uh, that you're not getting as much of the audience you would get later on. They, it just is a general phenomenon that it, it, they're definitely more front loaded. Uh, most of these releases, they so they're making more money early on and not making money later. Sure. So it may be that half of the people in the U.S. or whatever are just as eager to go to movies or more eager, and then some percentage of them are not. It's probably uh, you know, and that has an effect. It has an effect on the window. For instance, there's mm-hmm. no need to, like, you know, Bond. Skyfall was different. But if you put that out, uh, exclude that, you know, even a Bond movie, it's not that important if they show it after the first four weeks. If it has figures like this, and we'll see how it holds over the weeks. But there's really no need to run things in movie theaters for more than about four or five weeks now, I would say. They, they just don't. I mean, you're seeing drops. You know, they'll make 50 million or whatever this weekend. Then you'll make like 25 million the next mm-hmm. weekend. Yeah, 12 million. At best, the way that movies are going now, for a lot of movies, the drops are a lot more severe than that. And so you can do the math. There's no point in week five to keep showing it. So, yeah. And this was not a day and date one. So it didn't come out at the same time on, uh, on um, you know, HBO Max or any of those sorts of things. Obviously, it's a different um, studio doing it. But that may have also affected some of the other movies that we've that have had kind of softer openings and stuff too. But uh, yeah. And you liked it? Yeah, I'm not going to comment on does that. Does he die at the end? I'm not going to comment so on that. So you did not either. like it. And he does die at the I, end. I'm not commenting on any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Do you know what industry you and I probably talk about the most on the podcast? Or I mean, not on the podcast, but even just I feel like uh, amongst ourselves, I feel like we talk about banking the most uh, uh, from like industry perspective. And, yeah, that might be true. Yeah. And um, uh, I think it's probably one of the most interesting bank or industries in the world. Um, but I came across this essay that I thought would be great content to, to go over on the podcast. And this is from MaxfieldOnBanks.com. Um, we've talked about this website once before. You should also follow him on Twitter. I'll put all of his information down below. Um, but this is a great website to also get a bunch of books that he recommends on uh, banking. Mm-hmm. Um, I've found a couple of books from here as well. Still working my way through um, more than half of them. But if you're interested in banking, this is just a cool website to, um, you know, 
to familiarize yourself with. But he has essays on here, which I'm hoping, um, you know, us doing this podcast will prompt him to do another essay do another because this, this last essay was great. Yeah. Okay. And it was November 10th. Uh, yeah. November 10th, 2020. And it's 20 lessons about banking from 10 years of study. And there's some interesting things in here. Some things that, um, you know, we would say some things that we wouldn't, but I just thought it would be cool to talk about it and just kind of see where we go with it. Um, and he thinks, you know, and I don't know if he listed these from like importance or not, but um, number one, fortunes can be made in banking, but only by earning consistent returns through multiple cycles. So you've actually written about that before, uh, mm-hmm. the consistency of it. So the type of business that they're doing, the type of lending that they're doing, the type of bank that they are. Um, and you know, the quickest way, which she actually lists later on in this list, uh, you know, a good way to sort of sanity check a bank or check the level of risk of a bank or the people running it is really just go through like the last crisis, right? So like 2007, 2008, 2009 mm-hmm. uh, to see, you know, what they were doing or how they did or how they fared out through it if they did. Yeah. And also related to what he was saying there is uh, you can't you can't get rich quickly. The returns in any one year because you're cap you're constrained by capital levels. Um, can never be that big to make up for having some down years uh, in other parts of the cycle. So I was reminded of that because I was just reading something um, about Buffett's investment in Geico when he was an individual. Uh, so just buying it for himself in the very early 50s. And I, on average, the stocks that we own are now bigger than Geico was when he bought into it, when you adjust it for inflation and stuff. Really? So, yeah. And so he saw the advantage that it had. It was already a couple decades old at that point. Insurance similar to banking. And uh, it's been 70 years and they've, you know, with there was a 10 year period where they didn't really gain market share, but otherwise they've gained market share all the time and they're still, you know, growing and profitable and all of that. But it's still that same steady rate throughout that whole period, you know, and they probably would have been, um, you know, I would guess that Geico has compounded at least 15% a year. Um, well, I was gonna say the value. Yeah. Do you remember we did the math on the growth in premiums over the you know six or seven years or whatever data we had when we went over the annual report mm-hmm. and his chairman letter? It was like what 15, 14 to fifteen yeah, percent. If I remember say correctly, it's, yeah, yeah, it's like fourteen percent or something. Plus, they got returns on their investment that way and stuff. And you can also guess based on what Progressive is valued in the market at what Geico would be valued at. I think it's a pretty good. Um, proxy for it and yeah it would probably be about 15 percent a year or something for 70 years and it didn't do badly before buffett bought into it either i mean that was the startup phase so it just gives you some idea that it's basically made all its money from doing the same thing and earning high returns on equity you know but never um there's never any period in which it grows like you know it would be listed as one of the hottest growth stocks or something it's just consistent performer decade after decade with one big exception Mm mm-hmm Got it. Number two, the archetype of extraordinary bankers doesn't match the stereotype. Yes. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. But I is that the stereotype? I guess the stereotype of a banker is more like investment banking deal making. That's what whatever, they think about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that the first thing they're describing is kind of my stereotype of what a banker would be. Just very cool, calm, and collected. Even keeled, not... Uh, well, you have to not get caught up in, you know... The craziness. Yeah, Buffett said, you know, I, I forget... He's got that on here, too. <laughs> in one of his letters, basically, uh, he said, you know, for the most part, banks really have gotten in trouble just on the asset side. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't really gotten in trouble, usually, on the expense side. So, do you want to explain that? And liabilities. So, assets, meaning the types of the loans, loans that they're that making. They make, yeah. And in some cases, you know, it could be securities you buy, but it's, it's definitely generally been loans. Um, yeah. And they're different each time, but there have been a few 
crazy things over the years. Well, that's like the institutional imperative thing, right? And how Buffett talks about resisting it. And I think he's actually yeah. used banking as an example of that. Banking and insurance are the best examples because um, there's nothing about the history of your organization usually that like if you were determined to shift in some direction would stop you, right? So, you know, um, most businesses have more real stuff that isn't capital that you get to redeploy. So you're limited in some ways. You, your brand is positioned a certain way, it's distributed a certain way. You can't suddenly go in a, a different direction. Um, but banking insurance, you can. And so you can certainly um, enter a different kind of uh, uh, area and take risks in it pretty quickly. Um, and that's kind of what Buffett was talking about, I think. Uh, and then often it's the area that for, uh, is growing faster. I mean, that's been my experience, uh, in not just in banking, but in other industries. I, I always talk about how it is helpful to have at least some level of organic growth, some unit growth in a business because it acts as a safety valve, uh, also dividends do, but it acts as a safety valve to keep the company from uh, going into different areas when its business, core business slows down mm -hmm. and doing dumb things. And that often happens. Uh, you know, you go into some other area that way. I mean, I've talked about that because I wrote up one of the Hawaii banks one time and stuff, but they've done that consistently. All the banks in Hawaii at some point have kind of decided, okay, let's do some business outside of Hawaii and it hasn't gone well for them. And, you know, it's usually at a point in which outside, uh, it's usually at a point in which they're not growing as fast as some of their peers could be, but they're not even located in the same place as the peers, mm -hmm. but they're still benchmarking themselves off of that and saying, we need to do that, you know? Um, and so I think that that's, uh, that whatever it is, envy or whatever, that trying to pursue that growth. Um, so your biggest risk is when your original growth stuff kind of slows down. That's not naturally there and you have to make changes. As an investor, how would you monitor that? So if a bank in Hawaii was going to enter a new market, for example. I would get out. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Even if the market was, I mean, is it, are you, is that specific to that situation or because uh, like I they're in Hawaii going more to like, you know, more inland. I mean, how do you kind of handicap that? Because, and the reason I ask is, I mean, we know of banks, for example, that are expanding in new markets and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So it's just like, how would you sort of monitor that? Um, yeah, I, someone was talking to me about a bank in a very small area recently. And honestly, that's my biggest concern. Um, they will outgrow that and they'll want to do other things and they'll be, um, there'll be some risks of doing dumb things. Um, it's safest if you have uh, your past, what you've done in the past lines up well enough with uh, future growth. And so that is why things like, you know, when we're start, uh, talking about the insurance things, the auto insurance and stuff is helpful because you don't outgrow that kind of niche or whatever. Mm -hmm. It is more of a problem uh, in, in other uh, banking things that way. Uh, like, so... I think it's difficult, honestly, for things like uh, Hawaii or Ireland or whatever um, to expand into other th places uh, because it's not natural the same way that would be if you were just a bank in the U.S. that could slowly expand into different markets that have some similarities to your market. Your home market doesn't. Um, so I'd be aware of that and be somewhat concerned about that because it's unique the market that you're in mm -hmm. uh, same thing for alaska and the us and stuff uh so you kind of have to make a decision about that where it's a lot easier if you're just in one part of pennsylvania and then you expand to other parts of pennsylvania and then you expand to ohio and then you know that's a much more natural uh, sort of process mm -hmm. i mean like with the hawaii thing they had to decide 
where they wanted to go, California, Guam, places like that. And that's what they Were did. they doing different types of lending when yeah, they left Hawaii? That's also another issue with it, yeah. That sometimes you do different kinds of lending. Um, often you do, yeah. Interesting. So, like the example I gave, like the mo- most extreme one in terms of Hawaii and stuff that was worrying about a company, a different company, not the same bank, um, is they started to, they made a lot of loans fast in uh, California and tied to construction, whereas they weren't necessarily... Uh, did as much construction lending in Hawaii and they hadn't, you know, California and Hawaii aren't the same thing exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's a little dangerous and um, you're probably not going to see the <laughs> best deals and things. I mean, it's like, um, you know, we're talking about movies and stuff. Um, that is an issue for Amazon Studios or whatever, right? Amazon Studios or a company like that wants to make a movie. Um, they will, you know, literally see something that all the major studios have passed on. You know that by the time it comes to your desk, sure. it's already been passed on by everyone else. Yeah. They're not going to say, I really want to make it with Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Right. So, it, which is fine. I mean, there are probably some good deals in there to make, mm-hmm. but it is a problem. And so if you're new, I think if you're new to a market, that is a bit of an issue. I don't know how you would think that you could make construction loans better than people who are already in the state doing it. Because um, I just think you see the most marginal stuff that way, which, you know, it could, could be good. There could be ways of doing it, but you always have to be careful about that. The new entrance stuff is going to tend to see the most marginal stuff and that's what you have to be careful of got it number three darlings in one era are often pariahs in the next in 1978 continental illinois national bank and trust company of chicago was named one of the five best managed companies in america six years later it failed this is a common narrative in banking yeah i I don't think it's just banking but yeah i mean you know ge was probably named the best uh enron Enron, those sorts of things not that long before a period in which they had bad results um it's almost like the halo effect i guess a lot of it is company a lot of times is that they're telling you like you know your stock performance and things like that uh they're kind of grading you on things you did a long time ago that's now bearing fruit now sure and not on the stuff that you're doing recently and and it's like when jeff bezos he said that every time people congratulate him on a quarter he would be like well thanks but i'm already you know three years ahead thinking about the next you know it's like we did that work a long time ago yeah now being thanked for it you congratulate that amazon book that you were talking about the new one yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and so a lot of things that uh, performed well in terms of revenue sources and stuff later, you know, they talk about in that book, how long ago they were developing them and put the effort into them. So in a lot of ways, like people get positive about Amazon in 2015 when it was really stuff that they were doing in, you know, in 2010, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so the organization may have changed. It may not, you know, it may be different now what they're working on than the things that paid off in the past. Uh, so yeah, I think that's true with any of these. And they also, these lists and things usually show the companies that have the fastest growth and stuff. And as I said before, in um, financial services things, uh, insurance and banking, uh, rapid asset growth is the biggest thing. Like if I was a regulator, the number one thing to warn about is rapid asset growth. If you're growing your assets faster than peers, and if you have a sudden increase in the speed at which you're growing your assets, then you need to zero in on that and really focus on that more than See what they're thing. doing? Yeah, yeah. Got it. Number four, the most effective cultures are grounded in altruism and universal human desires. And he says, M&T Bank's mission is to make a difference in people's lives. BB&T's mission prior to its merger with SunTrust Banks was to make the world a better place to live. It isn't a coincidence that both banks have produced long-term results that are the envy of the industry. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. There was a few that had mission statements to basically put people in houses and things like that, and 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 things that are not that sound good but are bad. Uh, so I think find that hard with mission statements always. However, it probably is good not to have a culture that um, is so based on uh, meritocracy or whatever inside the organization mm-hmm. incentives that you're uh, not thinking about it as a team and the organization overall, but just like literally what um, uh, what is it worth? What are you worth to the organization that way? I mentioned Enron. That's a really good example. And, and the AIG actually too. Um, Enron and AIG both had that. Uh, sort of thinking a very incentive driven way people would like kind of incentives that investors you talk about liking a lot but it it led to a tendency to just worry about your own business uh, how much your bonus was going to be and not worried about what this meant for the organization that you were piling up risks and things yeah yeah it's interesting Buffett's talked about how when he was at Salomon Brothers for example he would give some 28 or 29 year old, I think is what he said, a $2 million bonus. And he'd be so happy until he realized that somebody that he worked with or an associate made like 2.1 or $2.2 million. I've seen that myself with people I know in investment banking. Yeah. The exact thing you're describing. Uh huh. Happy with the bonus and then found out what other people made. Yeah. And not happy. <laughs> yeah. Because the bonus means other things that way. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's like the, the and, hierarchy. And in thing. other organizations, they give it out in other ways. It can be titles, it can be offices, it can be, but it's signs of the favor of whoever. Is yeah. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I guess the question is what do you think is the most effective culture in a bank? That's a very good question. I don't think I know enough about it in most places to know for sure. Um, I do think that uh, evaluating risks organization wide by some people who are involved in the overall running of the business is the best way to do it. That's the one thing that I kind of would feel is consistent throughout learning about things in insurance and banking. Um, not having, uh, not separating out kind of risk control, uh, thinking of it as something different. So that, that's what you don't want, I think. So it's, it's something that, uh, like when I mentioned AIG, for instance, AIG had an issue that they lost, they lost, they pushed them out and stuff for legitimate reasons. But uh, a CEO who had a different attitude about risk and was very aggressive in finding in the organization and dealing with it. And I don't think that other people really knew the risks that they were taking uh, firm wide. And so I think they, they need to be at the top. The you know chief risk uh, officer or whatever needs to be the CEO, basically. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. And not to feel like th- somehow it's put off on someone else. I mean, that's what all people always believe is like, um, in a sense, if there's some um, independent source that's checking off on you, that kind of actually can be worse because y- you have some standards that it met. And so then people kind of feel like it's not my responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it depends. I mean, I wrote about Carmar and stuff. Carmar, there's some different insurers and things that do things on stuff that's very long-term that the results could be that tie stuff. It's basically clawing back and stuff. Uh, things tied directly to decisions that you made because they can't see the full result of your decisions within the first 12 months. So there's some stuff that goes longer term. So they want to avoid giving you a bonus and stuff that um, will reward behavior that looks good in the first year, but doesn't look good later on. So that's important, you know, mm-hmm. and you saw that, you know, Wells Fargo with the incentives there, they had incentives designed to do something that's very logical for their business. But then, of course, people go um, focus, you know, that that those incentives drive behavior, even when it's something that you don't want. Sure. Yeah. Five bankers make better decisions when lending their own money. I don't 
know about this one. I don't know. Okay. Uh, a lot of people think skinning the game is a good idea. Um, and there's certainly people who sold money and who, who sold um, stock. Uh, I'm not as convinced in investing in general, whether it's banking, insurance, or just other businesses and stuff, whether skin in the game is as important as the other people believe. I don't believe that organizations that bring themselves down when they don't have money in it um, would have necessarily behaved that differently if they, they did. I think they honestly believe um, what they're doing is right. And cannot fathom that it would end this way. Um, countrywide, there's plenty of skin in the game. Now, they, there were some sales, I think, before the, the end there. But um, of the investment banks, I would, well... I just reread I the greatest the trade ever. Or whatever, the most skin in the game was probably the ones that went down. So Lehman and Bayer, at the very top people in the organization, probably had the most. Mm-hmm. Certainly Bear Stern, CEO... Um, kept every penny that he could in the company and, you know, did not sell at the rate that other people in uh, other organizations did and stuff and basically lost everything. Um, there's a lot of skin in the game in Lehman. So I, I don't think that they thought they were taking the risk people think, uh, outsiders. And I'm not sure I agree as much with the idea of, um, uh, moral hazard and all of that, you know, uh, but the other side of that is, I mean, you would prefer, I imagine, to have some sort of skin in the game, right? Than just completely nothing. I think skin in the game matters, but not for the things that people think. Got it. Okay. So I don't think skin in the game has much to do with massive risks. Uh, I I think that people who own a lot of uh, business may take massive risks with it. And um, others, uh, both if they owned a lot of the stock or if they didn't own a lot of the stock. I don't think it would make a huge difference if the CEO of GE owned a ton of G stock or owned no G stock in terms of whether they took risks they shouldn't. I do think it has a big impact on making decisions and taking the initiative on things that uh, require a little bit of initiative against like the institutional imperative type stuff. So I do think that people with skin in the game would have lower expenses, for instance. Um instead of being satisfied with the expenses that other organizations have. Uh, con- continual improvement type stuff. I do believe that. Um, making decisions that are more difficult from a personal perspective, uh, a cultural perspective, just unpleasant, non-financial things. I think that having last skin in the game does incentivize people to make the right financial decision at the risk of being less well-liked and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's important. But I don't think that it has to do with like catastrophic risk. I don't think that anyone who ran their bank into the ground um, would have uh, not done it if they had their life savings in it. I, I just don't think that they believed that they were taking anywhere near the risks that they were. I think they slowly took more and more risks. And, um, you know, I, I, I my suspicion is that's the reason why. And the personalities of the people and stuff like that. So in that sense, I don't believe skin in the game is as important for avoiding catastrophic risk as people do. I do think that it is important for... Um, um, setting very high standards inside an organization when the outside world doesn't set as high standards. So benchmarking yourself to yourself instead of your peers. How much of it do you think is inertia of like, you just have to keep dancing while the music is on? Like how much of these companies, it's like they didn't want to get off this treadmill prior to the financial crisis because all the major banks, even like Goldman Sachs, all of them, they were like producing like record EPS numbers, record everything. I mean, the bad news is I think it is fairly innate 
Um, and often you can judge by how people talk about risk and things um, in all different respects. I was reading a book about the financial crisis stuff. It, it covered a bunch of these different investment banks and things. But there's one scene in which um, someone's talking about it, like a risk thing like you're talking about. And uh, it was a group that was doing arbitrage stuff. And so they just asked in the meeting, so, you know, this position, what's the chance that this deal goes through? And they said 99%. And the the person who was involved with the overseeing, the risk stuff went ballistic because they're like, <laughs> they're like, they're, it's not 99%. I mean, I, I don't know anything about the deal, but I can tell you that you're insane, that it can't be 99%. And nothing is a 99% chance of that happening, you know, and um, that, and Buffett would know that. I mean, the... The, the even if you were certain of that deal going through the chance there's a one percent chance of things happening in the world that no deals will be going through mm-hmm. in like over a period of a year or something now this was a shorter period um but so it's an attitude about risk not to consider things in that um those areas and so some people have a lot of uh, ways of thinking about risk that deal with that and others don't and um i think it's hard for most people and most organizations to see the risks that they're taking when others are also taking them and particularly when they're not having their attention drawn to it. So everyone's very concerned with a risk when your attention is focused on it, but no one is concerned with that risk otherwise, you know? Mm-hmm, sure. So, um, you know, like, uh, say China or something, right? So people might be concerned about possibly of crackdowns on internet, whatever things. And so their focus is on that, right? And then if I asked you, what's the percentage chance that there'd be a problem because China invades Taiwan? They haven't thought about that. So it's a 0%, not a 0.5% risk or a zero. And if suddenly there was uh, news about that instead of news about other things, then they they would quickly shift their risk perception of it a lot just because their attention was on sure, it. Sure. Yeah. So you're not paying you're paying probably too much attention to the things that are present as risks now, and too little attention to like things that m- would might never happen or something. Um, like just thoughts that people haven't had yet. And you know when Buffett sold the GSEs and. Uh, that's the kind of person that you want in terms of worrying about risks because they took seriously their own perceptions of what risks can happen, even though no one else was. And there was no indication that it would happen anytime soon. And that's the best time to deal with it. Mm-hmm, like sure, yeah. even when we're talking about the mortgage things and whatever with those investment banks, um, if you're the first one to realize this, then you can get out of the position in a much better way than others. Yeah. And so you need to realize, oh, there's a problem here and we need to start acting on it early on before everyone becomes aware of it. And most people's is, okay, let's, I mean, honestly, a lot of people know it's a problem. They monitor it, but they don't move on it fast enough. You like know? wait and see what happens. Yeah. And a lot of times they do silly things like, um, uh, we'll take some risk off of it. So we'll own mortgages, but we won't earn, earn we won't own any of the worst mortgages. Well, only the very best subprime or whatever, even though we know that it's an overall potential problem Mm -hmm. or we think we're protected by owning the best in some industry that we think is dangerous. You know, so like some an investor will be really worried that home building will have a huge crash or whatever, but they'll have one home builder that they really like and they'll own that one. And they'll think that protects them versus others, you know, because they again, like benchmarking versus others, they're taking less risk than others, but that's not what you get 
uh, rewards for and stuff. You have it's not that you take the least risk of anyone in that area. It's that you actually have to take it enough that you're safe with what you're doing. It's you know just a yeah. I mean, maybe Lehman took less risk than Bear Stearns. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I don't know. You could have taken relative one organization could have taken relatively less risk than another and still failed because you shouldn't assume that only one will run into problems. You know, and like that or the one that always bothers me is, you know, insurance things or whatever, where they say uh, modeling off of the worst of this event that ever happened. You know, well, in the future, there'll be one that's worse than that one. Yeah. So that's, you know, one of the things that you want to keep in mind. Interesting. Six, the crux of banking is watching what others are doing and then not doing <laughs> it yourself. Kind of just hit on that a little bit. We talked a little about it earlier. Mm-hmm. So chasing yield. You saw a lot of that which basically caused the financial crisis. I reread the book, The Greatest Trade Ever, uh, the past week. John Paulson okay. and Michael Burry was in them and, and them shorting the, uh, making money from you know credit default swaps and stuff. But anything to add on that? No, I think that's true. If it's competitive. Um, I, you could copy what other people are doing as long as you're doing it inside your own organization. Um, so stealing ideas from other people in terms of how more efficiently to run your operation, I think it could work really well. Uh, what you're talking about is more like thinking everyone's trying to exploit the same kind of marketing efficiency. I mean, we're talking about commodity business, basically. Yeah. So Money's a commodity. Right, money's a commodity. And so you're all saying, oh, we have this thing that we can all make money off of, but you don't have an edge in it, you know? It would be the same sort of thing as what we do in investing and stuff. You know, if someone went around and said, well, everyone's making money in, you know, Japanese net nets or whatever, um, <laughs> then maybe it's not a good time to, or whatever it could be. It could, yeah. you know, in arbitrage Tech things stocks, or whatever. arbitrage. If yeah. everyone's making money in it and has been doing it for a little while, it's usually the time to get out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the time to get into that because, you know, that's, um, markets are somewhat efficient that way. I mean, if there's a way to make money consistently, people should put more and more money into that which should make the uh, inefficiency get less and less to the point that you shouldn't put more money into it and it should reverse too um both of those things are true and so you should always be wary of that getting back to like dancing while the music is still playing Mm -hmm. i don't think people realize and maybe our crowd does because everyone's investors in some capacity right but um you know seeing other people make money and making you know from chasing yield and staying on the sidelines, I think that's very hard for people to do mm-hmm. from like a psychological perspective. I agree. And I think that that's the unfortunate, and that's what I meant about Buffett selling um, the GSEs and stuff. Um, that's the biggest thing is that y- you know that you're doing it to be early and stuff to sell something. You know that it's going to go up even more uh, and you're going to have to watch that. And mm-hmm. people are going to say it was a mistake for a long time. And certainly that's true with financial things. I mean, at the point at which you realize that this bank or something is a mistake and you should sell it, it could be years before that becomes obvious um, to others because of what they're doing. Uh, so I I think that is hard to do. And people always want that advice, whether it's market advice or advice about a particular stock. They basically, what they want you to do is tell them the perfect time to sell instead of this is not right in terms of the risk return looking forward for you, you should get out of this and get into something else. If it goes up 100% before it then goes to zero, they're still going to feel like that was a mistake for a while. Mm-hmm. And obviously in many cases won't, you know, um, you could also be right about the risk that they're taking and stuff without um, it being right and how it turns out. But the truth is that the junkiest 
um, most marginal in many ways companies taking the most risk should have the best returns for the period of time immediately before whenever there's there's a problem. So actually, um, if you, you know, sort of the George Soros thing, the re reflexivity stuff, if you could actually figure out the uh, bubble in something and the, the bursting of it, then you could make money by investing in things that are actually uh, have a very bad long-term future, mm -hmm. but will have a good future briefly. Because mm -hmm. um, you know, like we said with the commodity thing, it's commodity. And, you know, the best play on a commodity thing is the most marginal producer in the period of scarcity. Mm -hmm, sure. um, so if you know that that's going to happen, but you know that on the other side of that, when the, it's no longer scarce, for instance, um, that you'd have been better off with someone with a lower cost position. You know, you shouldn't buy the most marginal copper mine. But if you knew that copper was about to go through the roof, then actually the most marginal one is the right one to bet on. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think that's true that like watching other people make money. I noticed that as the biggest thing in our industry about what changes people's minds and stuff is the difficulty of watching other people make money on things. Oh, know? sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, Twitter and all these other things, it probably doesn't help them that situation the most. Yeah. And that's why some things about today remind me of, uh, of the late 1990s that way. Because that was a big factor in the 90s, I think, is uh, people making money for a while. Seeing, uh, you know, seeing other people make money and things and thinking, well, I could do that. Well, I mean, too. look at how much flack he took as well when he made that, uh, you know, that speech at Sun Valley, Warren Buffett. And they said, mm -hmm. you know, people were just laughing and he's washed up and blah, blah, blah. And you know what happened there? So it's hard to do that. It's I think it's hard for. Is that a personality type, you think? Is that yeah. something that you're born with? Yeah, I think it is 100 percent. Because you have to look at things and just say the underlying numbers don't make sense this way. You know, um, at some point, the laws of gravity do apply. Yeah. It, you know, where a lot of people will say like, um, well, it's sort of what I was saying before that they could do a little bit of it or whatever. I see mm -hmm. a lot with value investors. They could do a little bit in some things. This is the best, this is the most value type thing of what they were doing before, but it's still crazy. They're buying something, you know, over 10 times sales or whatever. Um, we were just talking about sites over 40 times sales. You know, that's a whole different category of um, buying things than anything that's had to do with value investing in the past. You know, those are extremely rare. It's extremely rare to have things over 10 times sales in any year in most markets. Um, there's a tiny, tiny number of stocks that would ever fill that. So our past experience is just so limited on it. So you're, you're entering into a transaction that is almost without precedent in terms of any sort of value investing principles on it. Doesn't mean it won't work out. But I think sometimes people may fool themselves about how far they're going away from what they're used to doing, you know, and saying, and they're because they're making money too. Sure. Probably through the process, which only yeah, reinforces the, things, the bad habits. That's like one of the worst things that can happen to someone. If you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, all of AIG's derivatives, things or whatever, probably made money until the moment that they didn't because of how you're marking them. Sure. Um, yeah, well, that was the whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's it's always going to be the case. I, I should point that out. Like, it's hard <laughs> for most people. You're not likely to lose huge amounts of money on things that don't go well because you would stop doing it. You wouldn't continually put more and more into it. Um, so it has to be trades that are going well for a while. That would be something that you, why that would happen. Um, you know, you don't suddenly start something and make a lot of loans into a category they haven't made before. But they go well, and then over a period of a few years, you keep upping the asset growth in that area, like we talked about. And so that's kind of more of the reason why it happens. It you know it, it takes several years. I mean that's why bubbles work the way that they do. You have to have positive outcomes for a while. 
uh, to reinforce the idea. And then that's what I think about with risk and stuff I talked about before. Risk habituation, I think, is what it is. It's having made money on something similar five, six, seven, eight times. Now you're willing to risk a lot on something, whereas you didn't when you first started. The novelty of it wore off. The idea that this is a risky uh, bet has worn off. And so you're now willing to uh, enter into it without uh, having the same concerns about it, even though the real risk situation may not have really changed that much. Uh, the same risks may be present, and you're not thinking about it rationally. It's just that it's paid off for so long or it hasn't happened. I'll, you hear that from people a lot of times. Like, say, you know, let's say that you're worried about inflation risk or something now. Some people would say, well, people have been worried. I've been hearing about worries about inflation for 10 years. That's not relevant one way or the other, really. Um, that's kind of like saying I've been hearing about risks of earthquakes for 20 years. It doesn't make it more or less likely there'll be an earthquake next year. Um, so you have to be careful about that because mm -hmm. when you say that, what you're, what you're actually saying is that because I've heard this so many times and it hasn't happened, that's affecting how I perceive the risk of the frequency of this happening in the future when that should not be what you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, it really should be independent of that. And so I think that, yeah, winning repeatedly in something is a way that can become a problem. And sometimes for investors, you know, on a specific stock, if it does really well for a while and stuff, that might lead you to hold it and stuff. But more likely is people tend to sell and take profits on it. So more likely is um, repeating the same sort of thing, right? So like I bought this stock, it worked out. Be and so when I see the same sort of setup in something else, then I react to it the same way. That's I think, is more usually the risk. There, there's not a lot of people who buy a stock. It goes up a ton. They just hold it no matter what. There are some people who do that. But that usually isn't it. It's something that seems very similar to it. You know, so they bought this stock uh, when, you know, so COVID happens or whatever, and they buy this stock in this situation. When something else happens again that puts that stock at risk or whatever, they'll be tempted to make sure that they buy it because of how quickly the rebound, uh, how quick the rebound was in it last time. Mm -hmm. You know, like it trains you to buy on that sort of thing, which could be good or bad. It, you know, it's just depending on how close it is to the, the past that way. Yeah. Got it. Seven, the suggestion that banks can't evolve and innovate ignores centuries of evolution and innovation. So this is a, sort of a hot topic right now because of fintech. Okay. So do you have any thoughts on that? Will Ooh. banks still be around for the next hundred years? Yeah. In some capacity? Yeah. Will the best banks implement some sort of uh, technology to their business to keep up with everything? Sure. Yeah. There's sort See, of we division, agree with this. There's sort yeah. There's a division of a, a few different things, and so like, will some of the functions of what banks do and stuff go away? Yeah, but they've gone a lot of them have gone away over the years for all sorts of different things. It's actually provided by a lot of stuff that banks used to do are now provided by securities markets that don't involve banks. Um, so lots of things of that will change, but that they'll take in capital and use it in some way and stuff. I think yeah, they'll be banks. Yeah. Eight, true lenders have the courage to pursue what others denounce as simple and cliche. So they're looking for the two-foot hurdles. Yeah, that's simple and cliche sounds fine to me. Do you like banks that specialize in a certain yes. area? Yeah. As opposed to being, uh, you know, they kind of do a shotgun approach to it? Yes. However, I mean, to be fair, you could do that because, like, part of your organization could be... Um, uh, same, you know, whether insurance or banking, you, you could basically specialize in, in attracting money at a low cost, having low expenses and things like that, and then having a very 
diversified and and uh, non-specialized approach to the asset side you know that that's certainly possible so i don't want to say that that you couldn't do that and that might be the best thing to do same as in insurance um you know you might be good at underwriting and take the approach that you shouldn't be thinking about investing at all and i think that makes sense too Mm -hmm. um but yeah I, i think that whatever function you're providing that is creating the value in your um organization then it's good to have that be specialized absolutely yeah and mo- and there's very few banks that are successful on like both sides, like we talked about. So usually a lot of the value comes from um, the asset side or the liability side. You know, having very low cost liabilities. So low cost deposits, right? Or the reverse um, of having lower charge offs, and so having higher uh, returns in terms of what the yields are and the uh, net of those charge offs and things on the asset side. Um, yeah. So it's usually it, we can't find a lot of banks where both parts are true that they are making money equally on both sides and stuff like that and true also i think with insurers mm. you know unfortunately people complain bad and stuff but the ones that make a ton of money underwriting stuff don't tend to have these great investment returns or something yeah nine an easy litmus test for any bank is how it performed through the latest crisis something we always do is look at to see what happened through 08 09 2007 for every single bank Mm-hmm. it's a good way to uh and the last crisis that involved it. that was a particular risk to them and stuff i do want to caution with that with people because i know like um when i wrote about frost and stuff people are all excited about how well they did in their financial crisis financial crisis was not a huge deal in texas as compared to some places like you would want to look at the um energy crisis stuff that happened in texas and where all the banks failed and everything there's quite a bit before that. Same thing with any state. Um, you know, sometimes they can completely avoid something and they look safer that way, but it's not a good judge of how safe they are. So if you know that Canada had no problem in this, um, in some sort of crisis or whatever, then it's probably not best to look at that crisis, but to ask when was the last time that there was a big issue in that mm-hmm. for that bank? Or same thing with what kind of lending, you know? So when was there big issues in energy lending or a mortgage or whatever they happen to do a lot of? Um, you know, to, to really test it that way. Yeah. 10 highly efficient banks aren't necessarily those with the lowest costs. Uh, yeah. He says the typical bank earns twice as much revenue as it pays out in expenses. So if a bank's goal is to improve efficiency expressed as a ratio of expenses over revenue, it'll get twice the bang for its buck by increasing revenue relative to cutting costs. Yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah, we've, we've talked about that, like the different ways to calculate it. I don't really use the efficiency ratio, which is what banks use. I mean, I think it's important for certain kinds of banks, but uh, we, we've talked about how, like, I would say you use the cost of deposits in terms of the net non-interest expense. And so that could be either having lower um, so the spread. expenses uh, the, of the non-interest portion mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. So not the interest spread, but in terms of basically fees and expenses, separating mm-hmm. out that. Yeah. The assumption there being that you can get commodity type returns. The, the logical reason for that is that if a bank was, if a bank was so efficient, um, either being able to charge high fees for things or having, um, low costs, uh, that it was able to attract money at a very low rate and stuff, then it could just buy, all sorts of low yielding things or make all sorts of super safe loans um, and would still have a decent return. The reverse, if you're so inefficient, the only way to make any money is by taking quite a lot of risk in terms of assets. And like the most extreme examples of that 
or the GSEs and stuff like Farmer Mac, um, the reason why they can make money by doing something that has a tiny spread that way is because they have like no expenses in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I t- talked about that, but you know, they're their entire organization adds basically almost no expense because there's no so it's uh, purely a spread business yeah there's no um branches or anything like that right and you're doing it in huge volume and all of that so the closer that any bank approaches that where it's all about the spread that you're talking about then the better that is and conversely that's the reason why when people say like is this a should all banks be worth book value or whatever no if you're not a unless if in the early years you're a small bank and you're not very efficient actually you will your biggest value is probably to someone else buying you to be honest um because unless because in you can see how inefficient it is just how much the cost is um relative to other ways of having capital it's sort of like if you had a closed-end fund and you had 10 million dollars in or whatever and you had a fixed level of expenses well if you have a five percent expense ratio or something um unless you suddenly attract a lot of assets you can't fix that problem Mm -hmm. you're always going to underperform and you're never you should always trade a discount to net asset value for that reason but if you had a closed-end fund that was perfectly good at investing money and had a really low expense ratio there's no reason why it should trade at some giant you know discount to net asset value i actually i was watching an interview and bill miller was talking about he went and spoke with peter lynch one time and Mm -hmm. he knew some of the positions in peter lynch's portfolio and i think bill went and talked to him about fannie mae okay and asked him why he liked it and um peter lynch basically said you know what a bank does right yes mm-hmm. okay how does a bank make money okay i know how to bank uh, how yeah. a bank makes money and then he was basically talking about how fannie mae is going to have basically no expenses right and like and then bill asked him something along the lines of okay well why aren't they making money today or something and he said that peter just said to him well that's for you to figure out and then he said that he went and did more research on the company and came back a couple of days later or sometime later basically said oh my god in a couple of years this is going to be huge and there's so mm-hmm. much scale here and this is going to be such a cheap price for this business and peter was like exactly yeah kind of cool huh but yeah true. so i mean because that's what we're talking about you know again using comparison and commodity things it's the same idea with commodities i mean imagine if there was a business instead you know imagine there's a mining business but instead of it the government had guaranteed that you'd be supplied with x amount of copper at a certain price yeah if the market price is higher than the price they're going to supply you at and you have no actual operations that would be a great business yeah well that's why the gses were Mm -hmm. got it 11 history teaches that bankers face nothing new under the sun um uh, leverage is the friend of good banks enemy of the mediocre yep same as in the insurance things so yeah. people always ask me always if i like that. a lot of leverage don't like a lot of leverage whatever uh it's leverage it depends um, on the it depends. people running you know, it. like yeah. like i said like you know um i always mention that with progressive as excited as people are about it and stuff i do mention you know that's great and that's how they make their money and so you really have to focus on their underwriting and stuff but they are doing it at three times or so the level that some others do and so you have to be very aware of that mm-hmm. uh, that's both what creates a lot of the value and also what the risk is so you then have to watch what's being leveraged very carefully so yeah um absolutely uh, 13 in banking strategy matters less than execution uh, he writes some banks grow by paying a discount for troubled banks others grow by paying a premium for a well-run banks some banks prioritize dividends others repurchase lots of stock some banks centralize risk management others distribute it there is no one right way to run a bank 
Uh, yes, I agree with that. And generally with banks, unfortunately, they're not even going to have a dominant strategy that they pursue for a long time on that stuff as much as other kinds of businesses because in the U.S. and stuff, they're rarely controlled by insiders, families, things like that. So they tend to be on that stuff much more run-of-the-mill and stuff. Mm-hmm. There, there are some differences where some very small banks were started by somebody or whatever and they've uh, grown to a certain size so you might get a generation out of something but remember a lot of banks are really old and are long past the point of which they had any sort of um yeah i mean you just don't get unique capital allocation stuff at most banks it doesn't happen yeah 14 an ordinary bank generates more capital than it can responsibly reinvest in organic growth yes that's the big problem why they have the big asset um uh growth issue and that's mm-hmm. something that i've uh warned about a lot um you know i've I've talked about with people like you can do a calculation of that of what's your return on equity i mean that's the simplest way of doing it and everything then how much are you going to have to do get rid of in some way um because it's not possible to grow at that level so Mm -hmm. people will look at that and say oh this bank has a 15 16 17 percent return on equity isn't that great but then what are they going to do with the rest of the money? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So because it may be appropriate to grow at 8%, it could be. It depends on what you're doing. It may not even be appropriate, but it, that's possible. But 18 is unlikely for any length of time. So uh, you have to decide about that quickly. Now, of course, you can bring down or up leverage briefly for a few years, but you have to address that. And so the easiest way to do that for me usually is just to pick two points of time and show you how that would work mm-hmm. and what would happen. And um, that's how you see that banks get in trouble and stuff. Because if you do that math, sometimes you okay, oh, but in, that means that they'd be super excessively overcapitalized within a pretty short period of time. So yeah. they're going to have to try to figure out something to do. And a lot of yeah. times it's just paying that out in dividends or doing special dividends or <laughs> reinvesting Recently, it. in some cases, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I would agree with that recently and stuff. But in a lot of, uh, a lot of times it's not. Um, people have been okay with that with banks since the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. But when we went back there to other periods, you know, business magazines and stuff at other times will reward the ones that look more growth like and everything and talk about why aren't you matching their growth and all that sort of thing. But yeah, for the last few years, it's sort of like energy recently. You've seen that in energy. So what's been rewarded by investors and by the uh, press and all that is, oh, hold back your production stuff, even though prices are going up and all that. And so you see that behavior. But what like eight years ago or so it was the opposite it was telling them why aren't you growing your reserves why aren't you doing that you know that that kind of thing changes Mm -hmm. the same thing will happen at some point people will say why aren't you growing as fast as these other banks and stuff right now we're still close enough to the financial crisis and all the things that happened and that people are like get the high returns on equity pay it out in dividends and buybacks and all that sort of thing but at some point they'll be like you know be a growth stock Mm -hmm. 15 is this consistency not the amplitude of earnings that drives long-term value in banking uh yeah yeah i would say I, that's true i mean sure. it's a lot of public companies like how the stock does right yeah the if you narrow it down to a certain level i mean there's two-thirds or something of banks that probably you wouldn't want to be invested in just because the earnings level is too low in terms of returns on equity and stuff like that so i, I would be cautious about it return on assets really i mean re- you know the leverage part can change but um yeah, I'd say that's true. They shouldn't. The, it's the consistency that matters. Yeah. 16. It just, pays the act with alacrity in a crisis. Yeah, it just means to be quick, swift. I had to look that word up because I've never seen that word before and how to pronounce it. So there you go. And he writes, run your business knowing it might be sunny, it might be stormy, or in fact, it might be a hurricane. Jamie Dimon once said, and be honest about how bad a hurricane might be. When crisis strikes, it's best to prepare for the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think people are okay with that now because we had a crisis 10 years ago. So, so these are all things that people would agree with now, yeah. 
17. Efficiency and prudence are in harmony, not conflict. He says, being a low-cost provider bestows tremendous strategic advantages on a bank beyond immediate profits. An efficient bank can be competitive on the asset and liability sides of its balance sheet, making better loans to better borrowers and securing a more stable source of funds, yet still earn its cost of capital. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. In fact, the issue is that the inefficiency makes it so that the, the more inefficient the organization is, the more difficult it is to... Um, to the more risk you have to take basically yeah so i agree with that and we talked a little bit about to that earn before. the yield uh to you know honestly sometimes just to there are banks out there and stuff that just to earn a fairly decent return requires much more risk taking uh because if you look under the hood the the inefficiency is there so they can't do that well. It's kind of like maybe the easier thing for people to think of is an insurance company because they literally use the combined ratio. So you know that and their cost of float and everything. So obviously, if you had high, uh, higher expenses, right? So you say you have higher expenses than Geico or whatever, you'll produce the same amount of float as they will. But you're going to earn nothing on it, mm-hmm. whereas they have a 5% underwriting profit or whatever. Well, then w- what do you do with that? Um, you then say, okay, well, I have to invest in assets that have higher yields and stuff. And also you probably say, I need more leverage, more investment leverage. I need to generate more funds to make this money, you know? And, and so you see that, and that's actually a big part of it with like, um, banks during the crisis and stuff that isn't necessarily talked about that way. Um, uh, why would you have all these off balance sheet things and stuff? It's because of the efficiency issue that efficiency in terms of the per unit of capital that you have on the balance sheet, how, what can your returns be? The easiest way to fix an inefficient operation is to up a leverage. I mean, it's actually what we talk about when I talk about my worries about things with China and stuff is that you're becoming less and less efficient in some of these operations in terms of per unit of capital. And so how do you fix that? Most like you know, say a property developer doesn't fix it by saying I'll slow down my growth. They say I'll fix it by upping my amount of assets versus yeah. my equity mm-hmm. and I can get the same result. Same thing here. The less efficient you are on like a return on asset basis, on like the cost, on all, all those sorts of things makes it okay. Now I have to, I have to you have more assets relative to my equity and I have to have a bigger spread. How do I get those things? You can imagine those things are taking extra risk. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to take a low amount of risk is to be so efficient that you don't need to take that risk. Yeah. Yeah. 18. Given the near infinite demand for a bank's principal product, which are loans, the onus is on each bank to govern its own growth. Yeah. I think that's, that's true. Basically, just be prudent about it. A lot of people will... There's always ideas for... It's 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 all back to the type of risk uh, and the type of lending that they're doing and their views towards lending and risk. Yeah, what I would say when talking to investors and stuff always is like, um, you, this bank is growing faster than that local economy or whatever. So start from that basis and think about so what does that mean and what are they doing? Is that a problem? You know, mm-hmm. obviously we can't all grow faster that way unless the entire country is going to have rising, um, like, you know, rising uh, credit as a percentage of our, our, all sorts of activity over time, mm. uh, which you can have for a generation or whatever, but as, same as with an organization. So um, it's different than other businesses. Uh, uh, I think you have to be really worried about asset growth that way. Whereas, you know, growth in revenue at a food company is usually a sign that the brand might be underpriced. It might be that people who use it then want to repeat buying and all of that. 
uh that is not the case with the commodity product like this mm-hmm. you know well we were talking on the way over here if a bank is growing it's you know right, right. you know pretty rapidly and those are a couple year loans it's right. like eventually that's going to dry up or you know you have to keep making those loans keep making those loans to just sustain that growth and that's yeah very hard we're talking about that in terms of looking at the balance sheet and stuff, how loan. quickly things come back to you yeah absolutely um yeah, I mean, b- banks have to do more lending uh, than you might think, unless the loans are very long term and stuff, because of how quickly they'd be paid off and everything. Uh, so that is a big issue, you know, as opposed to compared to life insurer or something. To a very significant extent, uh, you're just a renewal business, mm-hmm. you know, on that. Yeah. Nineteen. The biggest challenge for banks is to narrow the gap between the perception and reality of banking. He says, bankers are often portrayed as greedy fat cats who get rich from, quote, other people's money, yet in virtually any important civic organization, in virtually any community, you'll find bankers playing a leading role. Yeah, I'd say the perception of banks is pretty negative, sure. Mm -hmm. 20, this is my favorite one. Success in banking is first and foremost about winning a war of attrition. More than 17,300 banks have failed since the birth of the modern American banking industry 160 years ago. That's over three times the number of banks in business today. Yes. Although true for many, many industries, right? Uh Uh-huh. I mean, how many car makers failed and how many are left? Sure. Right. Yeah. I think there are some industries where that's not true, but any industry that's incredibly old will have have this as a feature of it. Absolutely. Over a long enough period of time, most companies go to zero. And in the banking world, why is that? Well, a lot of those Does it go all, you know, start bringing it back to the asset side. When Buffett says banking is a great business unless you do dumb things. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're taking risks that could, in a worst case scenario, wipe you out and then you last longer than 100 years, uh, eventually you'll hit that worst case scenario in a big way. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I would say that that's a very big factor on it. Yeah. Um, so likely you're taking risks all the time that occur infrequently. And then, um, you have a long enough lifespan, then you'll hit what those risks are. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Cool. What a great way to end this podcast. Make sure you go to John's, um, website, maxfieldonbanks.com. It's a great place to, um, I hope. I like this essay a lot. I look forward to his future essays and then also go work your way through all the books that are on uh, his website. I'm going to put all of his information uh, down below. John, thank you for this essay. And I'll also put his Twitter out there as well. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today. Uh, If you want to get access to the website that Jeff and I use every single day. Go to quickfs.net to pull long-term financial data. It is quick. It's easy. Hence the name QuickFS, financial statements. Uh, Tell them that you came from Focus Compounding during checkout um, if you do decide to uh, subscribe. Thank you so much for all the support, and we'll see you in the next podcast.